How many of you, if you could, dessert first? Amen. All right. How many of you are like, you know, let's get the bad stuff out of the way. Peas first, down the hatch. I'm that, okay, a few more. I'm, I'm that type too. If there's something I don't like, I like to tackle it, get it out of the way right away. Like, for example, the peas on my plate. I want to finish dinner with something nice. I don't want the taste of something yucky in my mouth. In light of that, I want to show you two verses, if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. Two verses that can be a little concerning. 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 3, these are kind of in the same flow of thought that Peter's writing things out, and he's writing to his audience, and he references these two groups of people, and he says to one, he says, slaves, and some of your translations say servants, uh, but he says, slaves, submit to your masters. And I read that, and I'm like, oof, that is not, uh, Peter, I don't know, that's really problematic, you can't say stuff like that. Um, and then he says, later on, in the same flow of thought, even though it's a different chapter, he says, wives, submit to your husbands or be subjected to your husbands. And like, Peter, you know, it's kind of like that uncle. It maybe was okay in the 70s, but you can't say that stuff anymore. Have you ever gone back and watched an old sitcom and the stuff that they could get away with? Even 5, 10, 15 years ago, you're just like, that would not fly in 2022. Peter, this wouldn't fly in 2022. We got to update the lyrics to Jesus Loves the Little Children because it's not going to fly in 2022. Some of you are still saying the old lyrics. I saw you, but you know, that's <laughs> we got to, every color, shape, and size. We've got to change things up to be able to help people understand what God's really about because there's these, there's these verses, there's these words, there's these concepts that just like really hit the brakes and we feel like Peter, you cannot be talking about slavery and even if you are, you certainly cannot be encouraging slaves to remain true to their masters. You need to, you need to offer a, a scathing indictment of slavery. Peter, you cannot be telling wives to be submissive or subject to your husbands. That's not cool. That's not the way the world works. How is this Bible, this supposedly valuable piece of literature that's supposed to shape us and guide us into the future that's 2,000 years old. How is this supposed to be relevant when we all know better than what Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3? It's tough. What do you do? Now, even if it isn't concepts like slavery or submission, there are other concepts in Peter that we, we struggle with a little bit. Like, for example, uh, when Peter writes, hardship is the pathway to real, deep, authentic faith, to maturity, we as a culture, and I, I know I'm generalizing, but we as a culture, we run from difficulty. We run from it. We do everything in our power to minimize difficulty, and I think by doing so, we've actually avoided uh, maturity in a lot of cases, because our lives are just, I mean, there's still difficulty, but our lives are managed by the avoidance of hardship, and Peter says, listen, hardship is the pathway to deep, authentic faith. He writes in 1 Peter 2, Christians, all Christians, listen to this, think about this, Christians are called to submit to every human institution. Those are the words of, of Peter. How does, that, how does that fit with your political ideology? They're called to submit to every human institution. We need to think a little bit about that. Uh, Peter writes, some of us, some of us probably in this room, but certainly some of the audience to whom he was writing, have bought into false teaching. They're carrying around in their heads ideas that are absolutely wrong, and they're guiding them down dark paths. That's a little troubling. He also says in 2 Peter, reality, kind of this, this physical world as we know it, will come to an end and be recreated. A new heavens and a new earth will be recreated in some way. All this, he uses the word, will dissolve. All this will dissolve. And he says, because of that fact, you should live differently now. Well, 
What does that mean? What different choices should I make? Because everything will dissolve, this new heaven, this new earth. None of this is really easy stuff, and often these verses are taken in isolation, and we don't read the full letter, and hopefully through this process you've kind of taken it all in together. And, and, and we're going to circle back to some of these difficult, challenging passages, because I think if we come at them from the right way, I, I won't say that they're not still difficult, but I will say that Peter helps unlock the real approach that he's bringing to the table when he talks about hard things, these difficult things. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to use 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 as a, um, as a template for how we're thinking about the rest of the book. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, th verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just a few lines, and I think this is so eloquent. I think there's just genius wrapped up in these lines. And this is not to imply that the rest of the Bible is not genius, but I think these lines are just so beautiful, and they are so packed, so densely packed with good, deep, transformational truth. So with that in mind, if I haven't oversold it, verse 3, 2 uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's a good verse. Let's unwind it. Let's unravel it a little bit to make sure that it's sinking deep in our minds. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I've always mentally interpreted the word godliness. I grew up around church and, you know, we talk about godly life and godly living and godliness. Mentally, this is just me, nobody taught me to do this, but mentally I've always interpreted that as goodliness. It's the word godliness, but I've always thought of it about like goodliness, like you need to put the shopping cart back in the corral, and you need to do that. But that's like the extent of what I thought, or make sure that your recyclables are all sorted out and rinsed out. That's, that's a good thing. That's a goodly thing to do, or if you're driving along and somebody's stuck in a snowbank on the side of the road, it's a good thing to get out and help them push them out of the bank, or you know, at least check and make sure that they don't need your help. Those are good things, and, and that's true. It is it is good to be good, <laughs> but that's a, that's a minimization of what the, the concept of godliness is talking about. If he was talking about be good, he would have said be good. He said be godly or godliness. Um, it's actually a Greek philosophical concept. It doesn't come from Christianity at all. The authors of scripture took this idea that existed in the culture and transported it into the Christian vernacular, which is strange because you're like, well, what is that? Well, why would they do that? And I'll get to that in a second. So I, I want to tell you real quick about this video that I saw this week that I kind of think exemplified what I'm talking about. Okay. There's these two kids who are in a convenience store and one is at the counter with the clerk and one is kind of back in the chip aisle. They're probably teenagers. Both have backpacks on. The one that's at the counter is distracting the clerk and tells him, hey, can you go get this, you know, thing behind the counter? He's pointing this thing. And while the clerk is distracted looking the other way, the one that's in the chip aisle opens up his backpack and he's shoving chips into the backpack. And I'm like, wow, this is really clever. These guys are, they're, they're smart. While they're doing that, 
an actual armed robber comes in with a shotgun and points it at the clerk. The kid sees him coming in. He and the two shoplifters are hiding behind the chip aisle, and the armed robber has a gun pointed at the clerk. And the two kids, you can see this all from, this is a security camera footage. You can see this all. The two kids are like popping up, looking, and then one of them sprints around the chip aisle with his skateboard and whacks the armed robber on the head with the skateboard. Armed robber falls over, guns fall out of his hand. The kids grab the shotgun, throw it at the clerk, and they get out of there. And I'm watching this video, and I'm like, wow. I mean, how do you have wrapped up in one person such incredible stupidity and incredible bravery within the span of just a few seconds? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever, like, just within the span of a few, just, just moments, you've done things that you're like, oh, I'm such a bonehead, and other things where you're like, yeah, I'm pretty proud of myself. Just real quickly like that, like, wrapped up in you as a human is this very selfish, petty person, and inside you is this very thoughtful, kind, generous person. Both of those realities exist in you. If you went to the University of Athens and your freshman year, you were taking Philosophy 101, one of the concepts they would teach you was this idea of godliness, to be like the gods, small g gods. And that meant to access your better self. Meaning that you could, in most given situations, make two choices. One would be petty and selfish, and one might be brave and, and selfless. You can access your better self. When Abraham Lincoln was trying to unite a divided nation, he appealed to and used the phrase, angels of your better nature. And that's essentially the idea, that within you there's these two realities that are sometimes conflicting, and one is more godlike, small g godlike, and one is more, well, human-like. The authors of Scripture took that concept. They said, yeah, 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 that's a good illustration. Forget the pantheon of Greek gods, but imagine you took that idea and you said, yes, let's be more godlike. Let's access our better nature, the one that is more like Jesus, the one that is more like God. Let's access that. That's your better self. That's the idea of being godlike. It's not just good, because good is fine. It's categorically true, but it lacks the depth of what this idea is talking about. This is all in us, right? It's that version of you that that uh, wakes up without hitting snooze four times. It's that version of you that not only remembers your anniversary, but months before plans the perfect evening for you and your spouse. It's the version of you that has a wonderful parenting moment where not only do you say the right thing and you don't lose your temper, but you can tell that your kid gets it because the way you articulated the concept is just so perfect. It doesn't happen often, but occasionally. It's that better you. And this is really important. It's really important that we understand this. This is the type of person that we always want to be and sometimes are. But this is a reality that our current secular culture cannot account for. And this is important for us to understand that we are more than our basic DNA programming. There is something in you that longs to be more than just well-fed and reproducing. There is something in you that longs to be God-like, like Christ. There's something in you. And secular humanism can't explain that because you're just your DNA programming. There's no reason that you shouldn't just do those basic reactionary instinctual things that first come to your mind. But Christianity says you are more than that. 
you have something in you that wants to be elevated and wants to be higher and wants to be greater. All right, perfect. Okay, Patrick, I, yes, I want to be the best version of myself. Okay, great. How do I be the best version of myself? Well, look at verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's what we want, glory and excellence. So Greek philosophy, right, if you're in that Greek philosophy 101 class, they'll say something like, well, yeah, you achieve that better version of yourself through Stoicism or Epicureanism or some Greek philosophy. That's how you achieve that. That's how you gain the knowledge that you need. And, and today we maybe wouldn't, you know, subscribe to, you know, Stoicism, but we would still say that there are philosophies that exist in the world that bring out a better version of yourself. If you're just reading a self-help book, it might be like mindfulness, right? It might be, you know, figure out how to meditate and those, those things are fine, but that would be the way that you access this better version. Or someone else might say, no, 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 the way you access the better version is through some sort of physical self-mastery. So you need to get fit, or you need to eat well, or you need to diet and exercise. You need to join a CrossFit gym. That's how you gain this access to this better version of yourself. Uh, they might say something like, you gain access to that better you through higher education. Or probably most commonly, most people would say, you gain that better version of yourself by pursuing what makes you happy. Your better version is on the other side of a decision, it's on the other side of a degree, or it's on the other side of a diet. That's typically the way that our world thinks. And Peter, this is incredibly modern of him to say, he's like, no, 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 it's actually not on the other side of any of those things. None of those things are particularly bad. You can get a degree, you can diet, you can make better decisions. All those things are good, but a better version of yourself is on the other side of a knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence. This is, this is really crucial. This is interesting. He's saying it's not about a philosophy or a program. It's about a person. Now, some of you are like, knowing a person, what is, how, do you, how do you become better by knowing another person? What does that mean? Well, parents, you know that's true. You know that there are some kids that you don't want your kids around because when your kids are around those kids, they become a worse version of themselves. And so you keep your kids away from those kids because of the knowledge of those kids and the choices they make and the lifestyle that they lead makes your child worse. And so you keep your kid away. And you also know there are other kids that if your kids are around them, it seems to elevate them. They seem to do better. And you're like, why don't you go hang out with them more? They get good grades. They're nice to their parents. I want some of that to rub off on you. So it is true even in our common everyday experience that the knowledge of another human can make us a better person. Some of you like who you are around a certain person so much that you asked that person to marry you because you liked who you were. You liked how they brought out the best in you. You liked how they encouraged you to do better and to be more and to be a better version of yourself. And so you, you married them. The word knowledge is literally true knowledge, true knowledge. When I was reading that, I was like, that's a strange qualifier. Why would you need to say true knowledge? Is there such a thing as false knowledge? Now, this may be hard to believe, but in their day and age, there was a lot of disinformation in the culture. 
There was a lot of misinformation floating around. And I know that doesn't happen today. I know that we don't gather in information that supports our current thesis of how the world works. But back then they did. They determined what was true based on what they wanted to be true. And they sought out information that supported that conclusion. Good thing that doesn't happen today. Right? In fact, I mean, wouldn't you say our current national division is maybe not defined by, but it is fueled by different information, which you might say you've got the right idea, but everybody else has the wrong idea. They are all full of misinformation, right? And it's funny because it doesn't matter what side of the divide you're on. You're like, yep, that's true. That's one thing we can all agree on. The other sides are a bunch of dummies, right? Disinformation, but, it, but Peter says, no, this is true knowledge. It's true knowledge. And he says, we did not. This is true knowledge, guys. And this is so cool to think about. He says, we did not. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. He's saying, however photons work and whatever our eyes do and how they interpret images, he's saying, my own eyeballs saw Jesus. You are reading, whether digitally or on a piece of paper or on a screen, you are reading words that are composed by someone who claims to have laid his eyes on Jesus Christ. That's crazy. That's wild. He, he goes on to say, it's pretty cool. He goes on to say, um, verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, meaning there was this moment in Jesus' life where he was elevated and it was revealed to at least three people that this guy was somebody significant and special. It happened on a mountain and Peter wanted to make three little temples there. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves, our eardrums vibrated with the sound of that voice. That's what Peter's saying here. That's crazy to think about. You're reading information from someone who says, I heard the voice of God. Most of the time, if we're interact, interacting around in popular culture and somebody says, God talked to me today, we're like, mm, did he? <laughs> Are you sure? Really? I don't know. That's what Peter's claiming. So either Peter's crazy or what he's saying needs to be taken very seriously. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I mean, seriously, if you were at a doctor, if you had a doctor's visit this week, you got some ailment, you're not sure, doctor writes you a prescription for some new medication, and he says, this, I think this is going to do the trick. You know, you never tried it before, but this is going to help you, and here's the prescription, and I want you to go get it filled. And if he, as he was handing you the prescription, he said something like, oh, by the way, I uh, saw Jesus and heard the voice of God this week. Randomly, Why would he say that? I don't know. But as he was handing you the prescription, he said that you would, you'd probably still take it. But some of you would be looking at him a little differently and you'd be like, mm, does this guy know what he's talking about? You would wonder if the prescription he wrote you was valid because a claim he made seemed insane. So whatever Peter says in the book of 1 Peter about wives and servants and slaves and submission, whatever he says, what we cannot do is say, I will take some of what Peter says and I will ignore the crazy stuff because Peter claims to have heard the voice of God and to have laid eyes on Jesus. So either we've got to just take it all or we've got to ignore it all, but there's no chance to just take bits and pieces that we like and make a patchwork quilt of some theology to our own liking. 
True knowledge. True knowledge. Verse 3, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Sometimes you'll use an illustration to try to uh, prove something or create a, you know, a a, a metaphor that helps people understand something and it backfires. And (laughs) as I was working on the sermon, I thought this might be one of those that backfires. So I tell you that um, in, in, in anticipation. So you can tell me later. That was not, that didn't work, Patrick. I didn't get what you were saying. My, uh, both my daughters briefly played basketball. It ended up not being their thing. They were more into musical theater and fine arts. That, But briefly, they played basketball. And I really wanted it to be their thing because, you know, it's my thing. And I wanted them, my thing to be their thing. And, you know, as parents, you really want your thing. You really push your thing. And somehow, the more you push your thing, the less it becomes their thing. But anyway, that's a whole thing. So they briefly played basketball. Wasn't their thing. But one of the things that I was surprised about when they were learning to play, they had learned the rules. They had an excellent coach. Really, I mean, they, had, they, they understood the basics of basketball, learning dribble, you know, shoot, this is two points, that's three points, you know, all that kind of stuff. But this is true for all the girls that were playing. They were all fairly new at it. And one of the things that was so shocking, so surprising, is how polite they all were with one another when they were playing basketball. Because they would all be running along, and one person would bump into another person, and that person would fall down, and everybody on the court would immediately stop about anything to do with basketball, and they'd all run over to that person and are like, are you okay? Is everything all right? And the dads on the bench are losing their minds saying, score! They're open! They're defenseless! They're defenders on the ground! You need to take advantage! Attack! 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 And they're all like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll help you up. One girl... Um, fouled Taya, who was dribbling, fouled her. Taya stopped dribbling. The ball rolled away, and Taya, Taya went to help this person up. And I'm like, Taya, that's not how this works. You, it's okay to foul. So at one point in this whole process of trying to teach them that it was okay, I mean, you're not supposed to foul, but they do give you five fouls at this level of basketball. And I said, I will take you to any fast food restaurant after the game if you commit one foul. If you physically impede someone in some way that you commit one foul, I will take you to a fast food restaurant and you can get whatever you want off the menu. Well, the first time they fouled, it was so funny. Like, my daughter fouled somebody, and normally dads are like, oh, refs, you're dumb, you're stupid. And I, like, stood up and cheered, and I'm like, way to go, you fouled him, yes. Taya did foul out one game, and I was so proud of her. I was like, yes, you have have arrived. So here's this important distinction. This is why I tell you this story. They knew the rules. They understood the rules. I am not telling them it's theoretically allowable to commit a foul in a game. I am trying to convince them to change the way they play the game. They know the rules. I need them to be so convinced of the rules that it it, it expresses itself in how they play. God doesn't just want you to know that sin is bad. He wants you to be so convinced and convicted that sin, Peter literally says, wages war on your soul, that it affects the choices you make. He wants you to be convinced it's destroying you. Not just that it's bad. We all know it's bad. Everybody knows it's bad. He wants you to be convinced it's destroying you every time you engage in that behavior. It's like an addict taking another hit of something, and it's just ruining you. He wants you to be so convinced that it changes the choices you make. 
God doesn't want you just to know that you're forgiven. We all know we're forgiven. We understand, theoretically, Jesus dying on the cross somehow forgives your sins. How does that all work? We're not sure. But we understand the general idea that somehow our sins are forgiven. He wants you to be so convinced that you're forgiven that as you walk with him, sin and guilt and shame melt away. That you do not walk in guilt because you are convicted that you are forgiven. Do you understand the distinction? It's not a knowledge. It's a believing in the promise of a thing. It's living the promise of a thing. God doesn't want us just to believe that someday all this will end and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, whatever that means and whatever that looks like. He wants us to be so convinced that that's true that it completely transforms the decisions we're making this week. That's exactly what he wants. And what we have is a lot of theoretical knowledge, but he wants us to be convinced and convicted of the promises to the point that it's changing our behavior. Um, Look what he says next, verse 4. He says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, forgiveness, love, grace, all that stuff, so that through them, the promises, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through the promises, partakers of the divine nature. Here's a promise you may have read this week. If you're caught up on the reading, this week in Hebrews chapter 2, you read uh, that author's thoughts about death. And in, in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 15, the author says, hey, God wants to free all of those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Meaning, people have such a fear of death, it has them in checkmate, and there is a certain menu option of life choices that God is encouraging them to make that they will not make because they're so terrified of death. And this author is saying, I want to free you of that fear of being held in slavery by death. You have more choices than you realize because the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die. And in his way of thinking, that's not that bad. The author Peter, the author Paul, they both looked forward to death because they knew that there was a new and better and greater reality awaiting them. So they didn't try to hold on to every tiny ounce of this life. They were free to do what God had asked them to do, even if it meant walking closer and closer to choices that would lead them to death. It's almost as if we follow a being who didn't allow the threat of death to stop him from doing what he needed to do. I don't know that Jesus looked forward to it. The book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, but he didn't stop him. A lot of us are held in checkmate by death. Can I tell you just a quick little story? I, I think I mentioned some of this before, but my wife, Corrine, is only afraid of death in one circumstance. Otherwise, she's not afraid of death. Anybody have any guesses as to what it is? When I'm driving, she's terrified of death when I'm driving. And I just think it's because she doesn't want to go out that way. But other than that, she's totally fine with death. Meaning uh, that she will stop on the side of a road at night by herself in the dark to see if somebody stuck on the side of the road needs help. Now, she's been told that's insane. And you know what? That is insane. (laughs) It is. 
It's crazy. It's almost as if she is not concerned about what could happen to her on the side of the road, that she has, she fully believes in a greater and better promise on the other side of that. I've had, she said, people say, well, that you lack common sense. That's just not common sense. Well, you know where common sense gets us? Our current reality that we live in right now. How good is that going for everybody? Is that going great? That's where common sense has got you. And I know you're thinking, well, the other side doesn't have any common sense, but they think the same thing about you. She is totally willing to die. Some of it might be to escape having to be around me so much, but she's totally willing to die because she firmly believes in these great and precious promises. Interesting. There is a secret menu item that she has access to you too that most of us do not because we're terrified of death. And we will not do things that result in death. We will not do things that put us in proximity to death. We will not do things that we think might put us in proximity to death. We will not do things that we think somebody else might think might put us in proximity to death. And it leaves off things that God is asking us to do. God is calling us to do. God is encouraging us to do. All right. Whew, this passage is good. So, if being convinced of these things is so valuable, so important, so true, then the threat to these promises is that we would, there's three things that Peter talks about. The threat is that we would forget, that we would buy into false teaching, and that we would, we would give into confusion from sin. That's the threat he talks about over and over and over in these passages. He says, I'm going to remind you of these things. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you because we forget. Uh, a few years ago, I wanted to take my passport and I wanted to put it somewhere very, very, very safe so that I would not lose it. And I did put it somewhere very, very, very safe. I have no clue where it is. It is gone. It is very safe, but it is gone. I had to apply for a new passport. It was this whole rigmarole because I put it somewhere so safe that I forgot where it was. If you've forgotten the promises of God, then it totally changes your life because you are not making the choices that you need to make. Forgetting false teaching and confusion as a result of sin. And of course, there's a lot in Hebrews too. If you're caught up in the reading, don't drift, he talks about. Don't drift from the confidence that you have. Don't allow yourself to be hardened by sin. All right, All right we got to wrap up. We got to wrap up because I told you I was going to talk about submission and slavery, and we've not gotten back to that. So let's talk about that just briefly. I become the best version of myself by living the promises of Christ. All right, got it, Patrick. Good. All right. What we, why does he talk about slaves, and why does he talk about submitting? Those aren't fun things. A lot of people believe that their circumstances um, have the final say in their life. You've met people like that. We call them victims of their circumstances. That's the final say. You know, they weren't born into a good family. They weren't born with, the, you know, good health. They weren't born with good financial status or whatever. And so there's nothing that they can do. A lot of people believe that about their lives. As Peter is writing, he's talking to a couple groups that have no status in society. Slaves and, in this case, wives. Not a lot of status. They're not as modern and enlightened as us in 2022. So what do you do with verses like this, with people who don't have status? I want, I want you to see, I think, one of the most important verses in the book of 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read this verse. We're going to make a quick point, and then I'm going to shut up, and we're going to sing a song. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says to his audience, You are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Imagine how that sounds to a slave. I'm a chosen race. Uh, <laughs> have you seen my circumstances? They're not great. 
and Peter's like, you are a chosen race. And he has to, the, the people listening have to be like, Peter, you clearly do not get it. Circumstances do not make it appear that I am a chosen race. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a line of work solely uh, occupied by men of a certain lineage. He talks to the wives and he says, you are a royal priesthood. And they're thinking, are you, what? I don't think that, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't seem right. He says, you're a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. And I think he had to remind them of that because it didn't feel right. And even if I am not in the same circumstances that they are, there are times where I don't feel like a chosen race or a royal priesthood or a people that I don't feel like that. Some of you have read Viktor Frankl. Um, he was a neurologist in Austria, and then because of his Hebrew ancestry, he was put in the concentration camps. And he wrote about the experience in the concentration camps later, and he talked particularly about the groups of people, not just who died because the conditions were so harsh, but people who mentally checked out and then ended up dying because they had lost all the will to live. And in his analysis, this is someone who had actually experienced it, he said the people who died were the people who had lost personal agency. Meaning that they were just at the, they were living at the will of someone else and they were just a victim. They were just thrown along, tossed on the sea, moving along, drifting along. And he said, but there were people within those, the limitations of concentration camps that could re-access personal agency. And he said how he did it in particular, he talked about being commanded to wash toilets. That doesn't feel like a person with a lot of personal agency. Commanded to wash toilets. And he said, you know, what I decided to do was to wash the toilets to the absolute best of my ability. And in so doing, I retook just a little bit of my own dignity because I was making a choice. A choice was not being made for me. I was making a choice. Now, this stuff is hard, and there's no doubt there's a lot to wrestle with, and please come tell me if I'm getting it wrong. But slaves and women in their society don't have a lot of choice. And Peter, as someone who was about to be crucified himself, didn't have a lot of choice. And I think he's encouraging them to retake a little bit of personal agency. You are in this position. Why don't you choose to do this thing in this way? You're in this position anyway. Now, I know we would, but Paul, why didn't you write a scathing condemnation of slavery? And maybe he should have. I don't know. If we talk to him in the future, maybe we can tell him you really should have done it differently. But he wrote as someone who would be shortly killed by Emperor Neo, 64 AD, he was going to be crucified like a lot of people were. And Peter was like, I don't even deserve to be crucified. That's too much like Jesus. That would be an honor. Why don't you hang me upside down and crucify me? And so they obliged. He was not a person with a lot of power. But he was someone who did live the promises. And I think that's an important distinction for us. You may not feel like you have a lot of power in your life, but you can live the promises. You can live the promises exemplified in 2 Peter. You, can, you have access to that. You can choose that. No matter our circumstances, good or bad, you can choose that. So here's the question I want to wrap up with. Does your life show evidence that you are convinced of the promises of God, or does your life look like everybody else who doesn't believe in these promises?